This program is sponsored by Wicked Chronic in Natick, Massachusetts. Located in 185 Worcester Street, right on Route 9, they can be reached at 508-545-8105 or at wickedchronicvendorcommerce.com. Wicked Chronic is a boutique-style retail shop that focuses on selling counterculture products such as Wiccan cannabis cultures coming together in a unique setting. You need something for that special spell? Go on down to Wicked Chronic in Natick, Massachusetts and speak to Beverly. Tell them Dr. Chris sent you. Check them out today. And you're listening to the Dead TV Podcast, a podcast dedicated to all the TV series that have been canceled in the science fiction, fantasy, and horror genre. I am your host, Dr. Chris. And I'm Mr. Seneca. And we continue our coverage of Friday the 13th, the series, as we are at the halfway point of Friday the 13th, the series, season three right now. Yes, uh, we continue with Femme Fatale, originally aired November 20th, 1989. A director lures women into his home, where they become unwilling players in his movies, thanks to a cursed film reel. Dun-dun-dun. We have this rather unique episode where they jump into something that's not real, or they're transported. Wow, we haven't seen this plot line. Ever? <laughs> Wolfman? <laughs> um, the last episode with the KKK? That was actually traveling back in time. Right, 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 right. The this actress, is like a fictional thing you, she's traveling into. The the actress who uh, plays our femme fatale, Kate Reed, her IMDb picture, I, um, IMDb picture is her as a nun, and I'm wondering, did she become a nun? Or is that from a role? Because if you remember, and Mr. Zeneca can relate to this industry, uh, the famous uh, bondage model pinup girl mm-hmm. became a nun one day. Yeah, it's it's not uncommon, actually, for people to uh, take the religious route after being in the alternative lifestyles or, you know, riding that edge of, you know, like, world, you know, adultish type of <laughs> uh, jobs. And before we get to the episode at hand, these two episodes, episodes 9 and 10 for the season, we have a very, very special guest on the show with us who has a incredible career in the music industry and heavily tied to this TV series of Friday the 13th, as well as two of the Friday the 13th movies, a New Blood, The New Blood and Jason Takes Manhattan, as well as another show we've talked about more than once, Forever Night. We have composer Fred Mullen. You know, once I saw that Jim had done it and listened to his interview, um, I knew you guys were very legit and serious, and I decided that I would at least reach out because um, sometimes people are shy to reach out for these things. Well, thank you for doing so. Um, this is amazing. Um, I have my my first question, the, the question that's on the top of my brain here is, uh, 
you know, you did the opening introduction music for Friday the 13th, the series, and all throughout the series, really. Um, did you have any specific moments of inspiration or things that inspired you for the music on the show? Well, uh, um, I, I thank you for asking that. Um, <clears throat> in 1987, I had really just uh, started in 1985. I had uh, bought a Kurzweil um, sampling uh, keyboard and synthesizer uh, and sampling sequencing device, um, which you know was a very expensive item at the time. And um, I had made a transition to composing for TV and film after being a record producer and songwriter uh, for years, uh, starting very young. And so in 1987, I was, uh, let's see, I was 34 years old. And I had, um, I had my two young children and I had a, um, a lovely life in Toronto. But I was making a change without really even planning to. But by 87, I was really starting to compose a lot of Canadian television and some U.S. TV, but not much. Um, and then I had a call from Ian Patterson, who was a buddy of mine who I had done some Canadian projects uh, and scored some shows of his. And he got the call from Frank Mancuso Jr. <clears throat> to, uh, to be the showrunner of this new series called Friday the 13th, the series, or Friday's Curse, being shot in Toronto. And... Um, it was Paramount, which, of course, is the big time. And I was very much a neophyte at composing for TV and film, but I wasn't a neophyte in being a musician and arranger uh, and working in records. So I got the call from Ian, and the call was to do a demo of a couple of pieces of score and uh, a title's theme, opening theme. Uh, and then, you know, there was probably about 10 people who were pitching on it, and I was one of them. Uh, and then I guess they would be played for Frank uh, Mancuso Jr. And if he liked something, then we'd have a meeting and uh, I'd hopefully get the gig. And I have to tell you, it was, you know, my inspiration was to, to get the gig. I mean, I, I, had, uh, I, I had two young children. Um, <laughs> this, was, this was a really good gig in the sense it paid well. Uh, it was, you know, going to be U.S. Uh, uh, syndication and um, with Paramount and, and you know, it was just everything about it I, I was excited about. So I was inspired and I wrote those da-da-do-da, ba-do-da, da-da-da, little uh, thing on, mm -hmm. on a sampled harp sound on the Kurzweil. And I came up with a couple of very gothic sounding pieces of score using voices and pipe organ and sort of sample strings. Um, and uh, I'll tell you one thing I remember. I was driving on... Uh, Broadview Avenue near my house in Toronto, and as I was listening to what I was working on, including the theme, I was listening to the theme actually on a cassette in my car, and literally as I was listening, a church bell rang in the right key, and I threw that chime in when I got home. I put a church bell chime in for that uh, demo. Oh, and wow. The, and, and the demo with a little extra work became the, the theme. Oh, it's it's just wonderful. It has just the right amount of creepiness to it that really catches you as as the the camera swoops into the antique store and then you know you get to the crystal with the the title credits. Like it has a bit of creepiness that just catches you right from the moment you hear it. Yeah, I, it was. Um, you know, <laughs> I always believe that certain kinds of themes are really important to only be like five or six notes. You know. Mm -hmm. uh, because it becomes sort of, it just becomes easy to remember. 
And so that's what I was going for. And, and I didn't see the visuals uh, until they had actually shot the visuals to my score, to my opening titles. And uh, I was, yeah, it was creepy. It was haunting, which I felt was great. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, Fred, the episodes that we're talking about tonight uh, are episodes 9 and 10 of the series. And uh, a lot of times these episodes, they do transportations into other universes or time travel. Like recently we did the KKK episode, which is mm. was pretty socially relevant to today. And uh, there was, of course, the Wolfman episode. And there was, uh, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the episode with the vampire, but it was like in the past. In this episode, Mickey gets trapped in the picture. Um, when you're creating the music for these kind of time travel, dimensional transportation things, is it always, uh, are you trying, are you doing any research when you're, when you got to make it unique to a certain type of period? I don't think I ever did any research. By the way, can you tell me the title of the one where Rick, where, where uh, Mickey goes in the picture? Femme Fatale. Femme Fatale, yeah, okay. That's what the actress who needs the people to be sent into the picture to get killed so she can continue living in the real world? And living and looking young, yeah. Yes, looking yeah. like a nineteen thirties, forties starlet with her. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. A yeah. femme fatale. Well, to answer your question, no, I don't think I ever did much research, but um, you know, I, I knew a lot about different kinds of uh, uh, periods and and uh, uh, music of that time. But you know, I, I I'm trying to remember that the 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 thing I would always try to do because um, one of the great things and challenging things, frankly about the show the series was that it was very music dependent so even though the show might have run 44 minutes long i might have had 30 minutes or 32 minutes of score in that episode which is really a lot yeah that's a lot of music to add a lot of music and i had to do it every week you know and so and i was doing other shows at at the same time so uh and i play every note of everything i did in those years um so um i i was very driven and so a lot of these uh, episodes. I'm sorry, but they do sort of bleed into the next because there was really a treadmill I was on, and um, you know uh, there was so much music being done a day, every day. I was like a human jukebox. But I, I can tell you that um, you know for things like Femme Fatale, um, as an example, uh, you know, or other episodes as an example, the one thing about Friday the Thirteenth, it didn't give you a chance to do the same music every week because every week there was a new cursed item and so every week there was a different motif i had to write so i had to keep you know so in femme fatale i'm sure i wrote a motif that was you know just unique to that particular episode and probably what i did was again try to make it more customized towards that episode what types of information are you given uh what direction do you get before you you have to sit down to compose the great part of the long-running series like Friday the 13th or Forever Night is that once you're really, you know, you've done your first 10 episodes, you know, you're just having a meeting every week to watch the new episode in its uh, fine cut and making your notes with the sound people who are doing effects and and, uh, dialogue replacement. And you're sitting with, you know, you're not sitting with the director because they're long gone, but you're sitting with the editor and you're sitting with the producer. John Anderson, for the most part, was there. And, uh, you know, I, I wasn't given any direction generally because after 10 episodes, they just trusted me. And I did 70, whatever, 72 episodes we did, I, I guess. And, um, you know, I, I, you know they, they trusted me. And that was one of the great parts. So I just, I would sit there at the uh, spotting session and, um, 
we'd all make our notes and I would say, hey, I'd like to bring in the music here. I think it should be this kind of music. And, you know, everyone was just basically just doing their own thing. And, and I, was, uh, 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 I was very, very fortunate to be trusted. So there wasn't much direction ever given, um, you know, because they knew I would sort of adhere to what they had shot. And you took a look at the final cut or as it was approaching finality? No, actually, um, on a TV series like Friday the 13th, where you're really on a tight schedule, um, it would be suicide to see a rough cut and write to it, because then the next thing you know, you get a fine cut and all your timings would be changed. So um, we always made sure that we saw a fine cut. And then, and then we knew that everything was going to be locked and everybody could do their work to the to the actual SMPTE code that was locked. Oh, wow. Now, I was looking at your website a little bit, and um, it's a little odd, but you have some Walt Disney albums that you've done. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I have to tell you, I have to tell you that um, I have two great kids, and when I was doing Friday the 13th, my daughter, Lily, had just been born, and my son, Aaron, was three, and... um, in later years, in 1998, I did my first Disney lullaby album, instrumental lullaby album. Because, you know, I, 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 I cover a lot of ground in my musical life. Mm-hmm. But literally, in 1998, of course, at that point, Lily was 11. And I did my first lullaby album, and she looked at me and she said, Nice timing, Dad. <laughs> because, the, you know, the truth was, her lullabies were, she, she actually, her room was directly above my basement studio. And her lullabies were hearing the most dissonant Friday the 13th music ever. And and so, of course, at age 11, I did my first lullaby album for Disney, and she just couldn't believe the irony. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they sound like really cute albums, I have to say. <laughs> uh, well, well, they're, they're very, you know, I'm very proud of my lullaby albums for Disney. I did, I did a lot of work for Disney in later years and actually ran Disney A&R for a year in Burbank, but... Um, a lot of the records I did for Disney were I'm very proud of, but especially the lullaby instrumental albums I did. I did four of them. They sold over two million worldwide, and um, you know they're very uh, sort of uh, sweet and um, inst- instrumental pieces that are uh, very meditative and put the baby to sleep. Very proud of that. Uh, Fred, then the uh, the the two episodes in question and in prior episodes. Um, oh, sorry. Let me st- uh, <laughs> let me start over. Um, sure. It wasn't just you involved in the music, of course. You were the you were the composer. Uh, talk a little bit about the staff that you worked with. Unless you were a one man band, which could be completely possible. But I'm assuming you had like many talented musicians working with you. No, it was all me. What? All you? Yeah, no, it was. That's all amazing. Me. Wait, no, you, that, that, was, oh my god, you're being all... serious? Wow. Yeah, I am. I am being serious. Um. Friday the 13th was a great um, exercise in early uh, sequencing technology. Um, and there were three, there was a Synclavier, there was a Fairlight, and a Kurzweil, which were these all-in-one sequencing and sampling devices that would also record your overdubs. And, I, yeah, I, I built my sound myself. And, and uh, you know, on occasion, if I wanted to bring a lead guitar player in, very rarely I'd bring someone in. But uh, but most of the time, no, it was every note I was everything I played and overdubbed. Oh, that is some amazing talent. I have to give you credit for that. I mean, oh, throughout you. the entire show, I thought that you were backed up by at least a six-piece orchestra. Oh, my God. 
Hold on one second. <laughs> I have to just do one thing. Um, sure. Wow. Um, I am honored, but, you know, uh, it was very uh, uh, primitive on many levels. If you listen now to the samples you can get for orchestra and stuff, I mean, they just uh, slaughter and, and make my stuff look obsolete. But uh, I'm, very, I'm very flattered. You know, what I tried to do uh, with Friday the 13th in general was to just create a very dense and very thick sort of gothic uh, soundscape but then, of course, I had to change and adjust every episode because every episode was about a different first item. Hello? Are you there? Yeah, okay, you, tra you, tra you trailed off, so I wasn't sure if we lost you. Okay, I'm sorry, did you hear the last thing I said? Yeah, I believe so. Okay, I, I, yeah. I was just saying, no, I, I just was, you know, very proud of what I had done to try to make a very dense and gothic sort of soundscape um, uh, in general, but then I'd have to keep on customizing it for each episode. In the episode with uh, with 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 uh, the pen, uh, which is the second episode we're talking to about, and when we have guests on, we like to kind of combine both episodes together instead of doing it like one at a time. But the um, the the episode with the pen, um, you uh, there's this prison sequence in the very beginning, and then we have the returning actor uh, from I believe it's the ballet episode, right, Mr. Zanka? Yeah, the maestro. The yes. maestro. The maestro. I really like that actor too. That was really cool. Um, but, uh, I wanted to bring him up because you did the ballet episode and the ballet, and there was like very Dario Argentio kind of feel to that episode, um, which mm. you had the music for. Not Jari, uh, was it Jario Argentio? Who did Suspiria? Was that Argentio? I don't know. Oh God, who did Suspiria? I don't know. Hold, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to grab something. Hold on one second. Okay. Sorry. Well, let me talk a little bit about our cursed object for today. Yeah, talk about uh, both cursed objects together, because I also will, then will <laughs> plug in the uh, promo for the for the second episode right at the beginning. Okay. Uh, so the in Femme Fatale, we have our cursed object, which is the 16 millimeter film of a scandalous woman. And now the a scandalous woman was actually produced for Friday the 13th. You know the bit that you see, but early in the uh, Early in the uh, show, we do have a scene of a movie that uh, Johnny and her and his girlfriend are actually watching, and that date. movie that they're showing. <laughs> I'm sorry, what? I said it's his date. It's not really his girlfriend. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he says he loses a girlfriend, but they don't really show no, a breakup not, scene. Yeah, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I certainly wouldn't be expecting uh, to remain boyfriend and girlfriend with his attitude during the movie. Yeah, but <laughs> uh, but the the actual film footage that they used on that uh, during that section is a, a real film called Detour from 1945, directed by Edgar G. Ulmer. And, 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 and by the way, I'll interject here. Uh huh. I actually um, gave <laughs> I actually gave them that footage because um, in an earlier time, around 1982, I had started uh, Canada's first pre-recorded video cassette company called Admit One, and we put out a lot of uh, very odd cult films, including things that were public domain. And uh, Detour was one of my favorite film noir films, and actually the 
copyright had run out. So I had I suggested, why don't you use Detour because you don't have to pay anything. It's it's basically the copyright was the was the, was was never given even. Um, and so uh, it, that was my decision actually to give the uh, producer John Anderson that that movie. Oh, that's great. <laughs> I thought it was just one of the fun facts the way, that I was able to pull out. <laughs> by the way, <clears throat> Detour is one of the greatest film noir movies ever made, um, done incredibly cheaply, but it's probably the most chilling film noir ever, I think, ever shot. I have not heard of the movie before doing this episode, and I will definitely have to check it out. You can watch it on YouTube anytime, I'm sure, because it's free. I mean, there was no, uh, they made it, it was a small company, PRS, out of the 40s, and uh, they did not renew the copyright, and so it is totally public domain. The awesome. uh, the villain in the episode, uh, Femme Fatale, played by Gordon Pinsent. Um, Pinsent, uh, yeah. Pinsent, yeah, Gordy, Gordy, who, yeah. Who's still uh, alive today and still working, too, which is great. Yeah, God, he, he was born he was, in 1930. He yeah, he was one of Canada's most uh, uh, renowned actors. But he had been on uh, a show we constantly bring up all the time, Babar. Oh yeah, yeah. which which yeah. of course our uh, of course uh, the late great Chris Wiggins was on Babar for you know a lot of episodes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we usually bring up Babar and War of the Worlds, and I know you've worked on War of the Worlds as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which just those coincidences in the television industry. Well, it was also the Toronto uh, a film and TV scene. Do you find it funny uh, because you started? Uh, I'm just trying to make sure I got this right. What came first? The New Blood or Friday the Thirteenth the series, because they're both oh, started in 1987. Oh, Friday the Thirteenth the series was my. I, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. It was my first legit big time TV series, and luckily a lot of series after that followed. But uh, Friday the Thirteenth will always uh, the TV series will always be very important to me on so many levels. Um, and when I was doing uh, the first season of Friday the Thirteenth. Ian Patterson was called away from the series to produce the movie The New Blood. And um, they had tried to library, meaning use existing cues, from the Harry Manfredini five movies or six movies. And they only got about halfway where they were able to use pre-existing Harry cues. And I got a call, I got a call from Ian probably in the spring of... of, of um, I think in the spring of 88, probably. Uh, and I was, you know, I was just about, you know, near the end of my first year of Friday the 13th. But I had made a lot of friends and people who liked my work. And Ian and I had been friends and collaborators for about five years. And Ian said, listen, I'm producing the next movie for Frank Jr. Uh, called The New Blood, Part 7. And um, he said, we only have about half the movie scored with previous Frank uh, Harry Manfredini cues. So he said, would you be able to jump in and score the rest of the movie that, you know, that we need to finish? And so there were, you know, basically there were like all sorts of holes that they couldn't fill. And I said, well, of course I said yes. I mean, I took every job that was offered. Um, and, uh, uh, of course, I was honored to be asked. And uh, I said, of course. So I wound up trying to emulate with my Kurzweil's and other synthesizers um, a sound that sort of almost came close to what Harry did with real musicians. And uh, and yes, so that was after Friday the 13th first season. Near the end of it, I was able to be called upon to uh, 
to fill in the blanks of Friday the 13th Part 7. And then you went on to Part 8 as well because of that? Yeah, and then Rob Hedden, the director who did a number of shows for us on the TV series, a year later uh, when they were doing Part 8, um, he called me directly and said, listen, we'd like you to score this, and Barbara Sears and Frank Jr. also wanted me to score it. But this time I had a chance to score it from the beginning and not have to try to sort of, you know, mold myself into Frank into Harry Manfredini's stuff. But, of course, you know, the reality of Friday the 13th Part 8 was that it really truly was a culty, uh, 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 a sort of almost a, a parody on many levels of the, uh, uh, the, the genre. You also have, yeah. like, a, you kind of have the distinction of being uh, one of, like, three, maybe four people who does, like, the crossover between the two. Obviously, John was in uh, Jason Goes to Hell. When we had him on the show, we I, I really yep. fanboyed about yeah. that because I was a huge fan of Jason yeah. Goes to Hell. And Jason Goes to Hell was the first Friday the 13th movie I ever saw on the big screen. And then, of course, uh, yeah. Tom McLaughlin directed some episodes, and he directed part six. And you're the composer of, you mm-hmm. know, of, the fran- of both franchises. Two films and then the TV series. That's that's kind of a distinct honor because uh, you you don't you know you don't have a TV series and the movies having that much of a crossover with the exception of like you know like the X Files had a couple movies but that you know mm-hmm. was, that was all heavily tied together in one continuity anyway. Yeah, it, it it was it was a great challenge for me because I had only I had done a few movies but nothing that was going to be in any way um, sort of uh, uh, potentially watched by millions of people and um i do remember that friday the 13th part seven the new blood which i told you i filled in the blanks that we couldn't fill in with harry's uh, um, library stuff um i went to the preview not the preview i went to the opening night of that in toronto and it was sold out and it was a big theater sold out and i was thrilled to death to be there <clears throat> and i also realized that it become had become such a cult item at that point that every audience member, every murder, they'd be counting seven, eight, nine, and it was a it was like Rocky Horror Show, you know, <laughs> and uh, and I was just I just loved it and the audience loved it and it was great. Now to be blunt, uh, part eight, which we had a lot of fun doing because I love Rob Hedden, but it was sort of a parody, frankly, of of the, the genre and of the series and um it was sort of cheesy um and um i remember going on the opposite side of the spectrum i remember i remember it was playing in toronto at a theater no one ever really showed up at in a hotel area and um i went for a matinee with my friend and there were three people in the audience and it didn't do well financially and it didn't do well on any level. And, uh, I, I remember, Oh boy. Okay. Well, you know, uh, part seven, I think was extremely close to the spirit of all the series. And I think part eight was, was clearly, we had, you know, I think the, the Friday the 13th experience in cinema, I think we were finished with. And so I, I'm, you know, I, I'm very proud of the fact that I did these things because it meant a lot to me to be trusted to do these things. But I also feel um, that um, I don't think we did justice to the Friday the 13th series as movies with 
part eight because it seemed a bit funny, you know. The part seven, you know, has a distinction, of course, introducing us to Kane Hodder. You know, that's that's huge because Kane's career has, out of all the Jasons, Kane's career has the most legs. You know, still going to oh, this I, very I day. Realize, I didn't realize that Kane had started them. Oh, did wait? You didn't realize till just now, or did you realize that? Never. No, I, I didn't realize that. No. Yeah, he. Uh, that was that wasn't the beginning of his career. He had been in like House Two with Sean, uh, not Sean Cunningham. Um, who did House Two? Uh, anyway, but he was in House Two as a, both a stuntman and a, and an actor, and he'd been in stuntmanning it for a while now. And then Friday the Thirteenth Part Seven, I think uh, you know, I remember it was like the big debut of him. Of course, he had played Jason then four times afterwards, or three more times right. after after Part Seven. That was kind of a coincidence that that was also you know your first film of the Friday the Thirteenth franchise as well. Right after Tom McLaughlin had directed Part Six, and he would go on to be director of television episodes for this series too. So you've had like there's some weird crossovers between the two in a, in a lot of ways. Well, I, I was very I was very fortunate. You know, I was very fortunate. In in our episode Femme Fatale, the basic storyline is that this cursed movie reel, uh, he plays it and then has a victim. And the victim goes into the film, and then the character comes to life, and he's able to spend the hour or so that the film is running with this character, which is also his wife. It's this sad uh, and lovely pairing where he's not really cheating, but he's cheating with his wife, which is playing a character, so he's really falling in love with the character, and... Like, we have only uh, three deaths in the entire episode, but... Um, Mickey gets transported into the film, and in our episode Miter Than the Sword, she's also the victim of the pen as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the in Miter Than the uh, Miter Than the Sword, the pen is the thing that uh, both inserts and extracts, quote unquote, evil, uh, and then creates serial killers for which the the writer is, you know, creating you know books and making a fortune on it. Right. Uh, in Mightier Than the Sword, we have a lot of very tense music when it comes to those like death scenes, uh, which I thought was very you know notable for me, uh, especially during the scene with uh, the writer is going to meet the serial killer, which is the priest, and that tense scene where the the pen is just writing furiously, almost out of control of the of the writer himself, Alex Dent. The music that you have to that, which which amps up that tension where the pen is writing furiously and that tension of that scene or the tension where Mickey is inside the film, that was done very fantastically. And throughout the entire series, we get moments where the, the music ramps up and, and, and comes to a crescendo where our heroes are in peril. And that that is fantastic to listen to, for one, and... For two, on those moments, those scenes, uh, the the what is your thought process, or do you have like a go-to selection of music that you use to build that type of anxiety? It's mm. a good question. Um, you know, again, you're talking about things that were done um, so many years ago, but I can tell you that when I had those sort of uh, <clears throat> excuse me. When I had those sort of um, moments that I had to score, and I, I knew that 
there was a momentum that I had to create on top of the visual, I would tend to, um, to go to a place musically that had a spiral that was a, a moving spiral of notes that would, in fact, create energy. And probably on that, that episode, although I haven't watched it in, in a number of years, I'm sure that that's what I was feeling, was that how do I musically add energy to that moment? And so probably the best way to do that is to be creating a spiral of notes that move fast. Hmm. Interesting, interesting. How much time in the studio do you have uh, currently? Are you are you in the studio a lot these days? Well, you know, uh, from 2001 on, I've moved to Nashville, Tennessee, which is where um, all the great musicians and great studios are. And there's no, there are no studios left in New York and L.A. comparatively. Um, and I went back to making records full time because after about 15 years of scoring TV and film, I was done. I, I really was written out, and frankly, I always felt that what I did best was produce and arrange records for other artists. Uh, that's really, frankly, what I'm, I'm truly most proud of in the sense that I feel it's the best thing I do. However, I will underline that there are exceptions, and Friday the 13th, Forever Night, and a few other TV series are extreme exceptions to that, and I'm so proud of my, my, my time with those shows oh we i mean as as i've said before we have been enjoying it thank you thank you it uh it was one of the first soundtracks i ever played on my regular radio show dr chris's radio of horror which started in october of 2007 i played the entire score i found it on cd on ebay um i was shocked now i just recently found it on vinyl re-release i was like whoa that's awesome and uh, it was shortly thereafter that I had one of the first guests uh, from this TV series on my show. We had Roby on. Oh, nice! And when she sent nice. us, uh, she sent, uh, she mailed me a CD of uh, her own music that we played uh, when she when she came on. So uh, I, I love he's great, and, and you know, again, I love John Lemay. We're great pals, and um, you know, we and I loved Chris. We never were great friends, uh, but I always loved spending time with him, and. Um, I never knew. I never really knew uh, a Stephen. Stephen Marquette. Stephen. Stephen. What was his name? Stephen. Oh, uh, yeah, the guy who plays Johnny. I think. I think that's how you pronounce his name. But we're not great with the name pronunciation. So yeah. say it however you I, think. I wasn't <laughs> a great. Yeah, I, I was. I didn't know Stephen well, um, but um, I knew. I knew Roby very well, and still do. And uh, John Lemay, we still keep in touch. But um, Stephen, I didn't really know well. Um, I I wasn't a great fan uh, of him. Um, I you know I have to be blunt. Um, I'm I'm generally blunt. Uh, I have to be honest. I spent a little time with John LeMay, begging him, <laughs> begging him not to leave the show, and, and uh, his agent really wanted him to leave the show, and John went with his agent, and we were broken hearted that John left the series because I think the series changed, uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, uh, terribly once John left because John was brilliant. Yeah, it's definitely different with Johnny as the character filling in that spot. Um, the vibe is different. I, I prefer John's uh, performance as Ryan. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Johnny is a great character. Yeah, he's, he's great, but he's 
not Ryan. <laughs> well, I, I, I think the Ryan and Mickey uh, chemistry was terrific. And yeah. I think, John, I think John is incredibly great. I think Robbie was great and Chris is great. And mm-hmm. I just, uh, I knew that once the, the change happened, I knew that uh, um, it would never be the same sort of, um, the same harmony we had. Yeah, there, were, there was magic there. There was, there was magic there. It was. Uh, it's interesting that uh, it's interesting that we had um, Roby on the show, but uh, you know she's a musician. But we never had her like like we never had Mickey do any type of like musical episode. You know what I mean? We never had like an episode with like to go to a karaoke bar. There's like a cursed microphone, you know, or right. whatever. <laughs> no, actually, uh, that's a very good point. Um, she had done a bunch of was karaoke big back then. Uh, karaoke was around in the 80s, wasn't it? I mean, Fred, you yeah, would know. No, no. You're the musician. <laughs> we, had, we, had, uh, we had the opportunity for sure, but uh, we didn't, yeah, we didn't uh, listen. I actually wound up during those couple of years uh, um, before John left, I did produce a couple of songs for Mickey, uh, Roby rather, um, for her own career, but we never did anything in the series, I realized. No. Mm-mm. Yeah, that's so. It was just like it always baffled me. It was like she is this amazing musician, but they never had like a cursed microphone or a cursed guitar that she would play. You know, because she could play music yeah. instruments too. Yeah, I mean, I mean, she was a singer. She wasn't a musician, but but um, yeah, we could have done that. You know, I think the I mean the only um, the only thing I did with with Roby was just a couple of songs that had nothing to do with the show. Um. What's the what's, in the episode? What, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, that's okay. We just oh, unfortunately we're also on a bit of a time crunch too, um, and uh, there's uh, I definitely have an invite to have you on the Radio of Horror show because we would def I would definitely love to talk to you about Forever Night, but since we're not covering that show right now, we're not going to get too much into that. Um, but in the future, coming up, maybe after the holidays, we can have you on to talk a little bit more about some of the other things in your career that aren't connected to Friday the Thirteenth series, if you wouldn't mind. Oh, I'd be delighted. Yeah. Thank you. Um, what What is, uh, out of the 72 episodes, do you have one that you love the most? <laughs> oh, oh, my God. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you, you're going back how many years? Oh, yeah. Um, uh, 87 through 89. And what? And so what is that now? Is that 30 years later? No. Is it really 30 years? No. Uh, yes. Oh my God! Yeah, now this is yeah. this is 2018. That show started in in 1987. Yeah. So yeah, it's yes. now 31 years old for the for because last year uh-huh. all the well, Friday the 13th website celebrated the 30th anniversary of the most unknown but beloved series. Wow. Well, I can tell you that um, I loved Baron's Bride. Oh yeah. And that actually got me some uh, uh, award nominations, and um, I loved the Playhouse. That got me oh, some, yeah. award, some award nominations. Um, I think uh, I loved the early episodes where I was just experimenting and so excited, like Poison Pen and Cupid's Quiver and, you know, The Inheritance, the first episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, I loved those episodes. And I loved, of course, I loved uh, the, uh, the two-part that killed John LeMay off. Um, yeah. yeah, the prophecies. Part one and I two. Loved, I loved those, and I loved. Uh, I, I did love the quilt of Hathor. That was a great two-part thing. Um, 
You know, I, 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 I got to be honest. I was very, very fortunate to have been a part of the series and to be trusted. And um, on many levels, I was deeply inspired. And even though it was part of my life that was incredibly full of deadlines and stress, I think that the great part of the series was that I was trusted and appreciated. And that makes a tremendous difference creatively as a musician and composer when the people who are running the show love what you do and, and they cheer you on. Oh, yes. Uh, in our episode, uh, My Tear Than the Sword, we do see uh, Mickey's ID. And uh, oh, her yeah, birthday right. is January 6th, 1961. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So she was 28 on the show at the, at the time of this episode. Yeah. Um, it's kind of interesting. We we I don't think uh, her birthday is ever celebrated in the show at at, at all. But um, I don't yeah, think, January 6th come yeah, out. None of them really what? ever had one, right? I mean, no, no. Yeah, it's not even a mention. <laughs> it's like the the, the crest objects are the the most important item to the show. So the characters. Personal celebrations or holidays are really just, you know, not really given any screen time. And by the way, I remember that you asked Jim Henshaw if he had a prop from the show. Yes. And I remember him saying he didn't remember. But actually, I do remember that everyone who was deeply involved with the show when they closed the show down, which, of course, was heartbreaking, um, everyone got a chance to go to the set and pick out a cursed object. And I still have the Jack in the Box from the episode Jack in the Box. Oh, oh we'll be we'll be covering that episode soon. I, I'm very I, I it's I'm staring at it right now. I still have it right now. Oh, creepy! Very cool. Very <laughs> creepy. It was really a creepy prop, and I'm very proud to have it. Yeah, yeah. Awesome, awesome. Well, hey, Fred, thank you so much for joining us for these two episodes as we kind of go weaving in and out of the uh, the, the episode points and of interest for the episode. Again, anyone listening and you're just kind of you're jumping around to whatever episode you happen to enjoy, uh, when we have guests on, we don't do the normal formula on the show just because of what we have for time. So this is basically covering a lot of the work that Fred's done in uh, outside of Friday the 13th, like the movies, as well as the TV series. And... Fred, thank you once again for reaching out to me to come on the show. It's been a great pleasure. You were one of the guests that I've always actually wanted to have on the show, but wasn't sure thank how to reach out to you. Well, I'm, I'm honored. And again, you know, this these years were um, incredibly creative years. And, um, you know, I, I find myself very, very humbled that I was able to do uh, all of 70 whatever episodes we did. Now, one of the things that we do on the show uh, for every episode is we talk about the cursed objects, and if we personally have any cursed objects, well, not cursed, but, you know, objects of the same type. Do you own any 16-millimeter films or fountain pens? Oh, of those two episodes, no. <laughs> but, but I told you, I, I do have the jack-in-the-box. You know? Yes! Yeah. <laughs> That's excellent. Uh, Dr. Chris, you? Uh, I have a fountain pen. Um, I do have a film projector lent to me by a friend, um, but it's not cursed, and it's not like... Um, uh, I almost said Stephen Hawking's, but no. Uh, uh, what is the name of the actor that's in the movie Sinister? He goes up in the attic and finds a 35mm cursed film, and then the boogeyman oh, like, comes that. out, and love it's that. like, yeah, isn't that a great movie? But what's the name of the actor in that movie? 
It's a Bloomhouse oh. film too, from the you know Jason Bloom's uh, collection of horror movies that he is dominating at the box office with like every other month. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's great. Uh, I personally don't have any 16mm or 35mm films, any of that. Although my first um, film experience was actually having a 16mm film projected in my house on my living room wall uh, because the local library had one of those programs where you could uh, rent out a a 16 or 35mm film. uh, And this was back in the early 90s. Uh, you could rent them from the library and take them home and then project them, and it was Night of the Living Dead. And to wow. this day, that's still one of my favorite films. Definitely. Wow. Awesome. And I do not own any fountain pens. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, it, uh, a fountain pen is kind of a weird one. I mean, some people will be like, yes, I have an office set, but I don't have a fountain pen. Um, sometimes the objects are just so bizarre, you're just like, who would own this today? <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, and in Mightier Than the Sword, we have four deaths. Which brings us to a total of 41 deaths in Season 3. Wow. And then Mightier Than Sword is also directed by Armand Mastorioni, uh, who has done uh, several episodes before. And Frank Mancuso Jr. was also the co-writer of the episode, too, which is, uh, you know, he, he I, I had love, a lot to do with I Season 3. With, I love working with Armand. He was fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on to the show today. I believe we have to wrap it up for time. I, I'm I'm very pleased to have met you and honored to be a part of it. Thank you so much.